Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. In this episode, we're going to get to the nitty-gritty and learn what happens when someone has a stroke. We're going to learn from a person who experienced it. We're going to have a conversation about her journey from crawling across the floor to get help, to rehab, to neuroscience to help rehabilitate, as well as how her husband became a caretaker. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is that thing about surviving a stroke. My guest today is Marsha Moran. Marsha is a successful businesswoman and entrepreneur for more than over 20 years. She's an author and a speaker and a healthcare advocate. She's written over 50 business plans and helped entrepreneurs strategize over how to differentiate their companies in changing environments. But her biggest challenge was yet to come. She suffered a stroke in 2014. She became a survivor that shares her story of success in overcoming with others. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michael. Can you, I only touched a little bit on your background. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Yes. So I actually used to be a marketer and I eventually started my own business in 2012. And I went out and I had just a really good time dealing with people that I really thought were state of the art. And I had had the business about three years, had done projections. It was going, I thought, in the perfect place where I would be making enough money to make it worthwhile. And then I had my stroke. That was 2014, correct? In 2014, yes. So tell me what happened that day. So I woke up that morning and something felt off. So I texted my friend, Rochelle, and said, I'm not coming to breakfast. And I couldn't read the text. So I thought, I'll just text her later. So I put the phone down, I rolled over, and I had the worst headache imaginable. And despite all the pain, I fell asleep. The next time I woke up, I knew that I was in real trouble because the whole right side of my body was paralyzed. And you wouldn't know that by looking at you now. It took a long time for me to get better. (laughs) Um, We'll get into this a little bit later, but just because it brought up the question now, do stroke victims normally, somebody having a stroke, do they normally not recover from that? Do do they typically stay within that state or is is there always improvement? 10% of stroke survivors are completely recoverable. They have no deficit. 25% of stroke survivors are like me, so they have some mild impairment. 40% have moderate to severe impairments, and 10% have got impairments that are so bad that they are related to a a rest home, and the other people die. That's unfortunate. Yep. But you have a success story. Yep. So, And that's quite a journey, actually. When you had your stroke... Um, did you go to the hospital? Did they take you to an emergency room? How did you how did you know that you had a stroke? So I actually heard the TV downstairs. So I knew my husband was home. So I threw myself out of bed and dragged myself across the carpet using my left hand. And I got to the door, which was unfortunately closed. And I had to reach up and grab the handle. And I don't know how long it took me because it was just out of my reach. (laughs) And it finally snuck open. And I took a breather because I was really tired. And I started crawling down the hallway. And I got partway down the hallway, and I totally lost gas. So I couldn't move at all. 
So eventually something crashed. I don't know what it was. My husband doesn't remember what it was, but my husband came upstairs and he saw me and said, Marsha, are you okay? And that's the point I realized I couldn't say anything, nothing. He said, I'm going to call 911. So he did. And when the first paramedic came in and saw me, he asked, when did she have her stroke? And that was the first time either one of us thought of the word. I've noticed it. Yeah, that's got to be very frustrating, very scary, actually, to, yeah. to open your mouth and realize that nothing's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> in my family, we don't have a history of that, so I've not experienced anything like that. But in my previous profession as a law enforcement officer, I went to medical calls where I was there on scene with regard to individuals that happened to have a stroke. So I was always there after that it had happened, you know, not, not prior to or during. So your husband obviously has been very supportive of you. He has been, actually, and I am so grateful for him. So they take you to the hospital, I guess. Yeah. So I actually passed out in the ambulance. And the next time I woke up, I was in the emergency room. And I was dressed in a hospital gown. I had a needle in my arm, and my husband was there. And as long as my husband was there, I thought, okay, things are just fine. And I went back to sleep. And the next time I woke up, it was evening. And the physical therapist was there and she said, we're going to go for a walk now. <laughs> and I'm going, okay. <laughs> so she put a belt on me that was about three inches wide. And she held me up as she walked me around the nurse's station. And as soon as I got back in bed, I fell asleep again. <laughs> could, you walk, could you walk at that time? Uh, not really. I went uh, clump with my right leg. So my left leg works just fine, but my... Right leg didn't work very well at all. So I guess a better a better question would be, can you help our, us understand what happens when you have a stroke? Okay. So for me, like I said, my right side was paralyzed. And when you think about paralysis, you think about the outside, but the paralysis goes all the way through. So you actually, I had no movement on the right-hand side. Now, in the evening when we went for the walk, I had regained a little bit of my left leg, or I'm sorry, my right leg movement. And I clomped a little bit, and it was, my right leg was stuck out to the side. So I wasn't really doing much walking. I was being held up, mostly. So I couldn't swallow very much. I couldn't talk. I could barely walk. The pain that I had from the stroke lasted for uh, eight or nine for about two years before it started going down. And, and what kind of pain are you talking about? Severe pain. Like mu Just, muscle pain or interior pain or heart heart pain? No, I didn't have any heart pain. <laughs> no, just a kind of muscle so, pain. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I couldn't move my hand much at all. Um, it took me probably a year and a half to get it to where it goes straight up. Um, but it still hurt until probably four or five years, I'd say it was about half a percent, which is very little. And do you know why that, that has that effect? I don't know. No, I, don't. I really don't. So some people have pain, some people don't. Do you, can you help us understand what, do you know what causes a stroke? Oh, yes. So I had an ischemic stroke, and that means that a blood clot went to my brain. And 87% of people have ischemic strokes. 
The other 13% are hemorrhagic strokes, so your brain bleeds. Now, I was actually quite unique because I had a carotid artery dissection, which means that the carotid artery tore a little bit, and it caused a false lumen. And when the false lumen broke free, that's when I had my stroke. And how did, do you know how that happened? I mean, how you how did that tear? They didn't know. I know. So I would ask, and they have no idea. So are people normally typically um, prone to stroke, to, like a history? Do you have to have a history of something like that within your family, like heart problems or any kind of issues, or can a stroke strike anybody? A stroke can happen to anybody. So to we're talking prenatally to 80s and 90s. It can happen. At any people. age. At any age. No, that's amazing. That, that you know, it can take place like that. That's kind of crazy. So yeah. once you once you got the diagnosis from uh, from the stroke, then what was your next step? Because I'm sure that you had a long road to recovery. <laughs> I did everything they said to do. Um, so I had speech therapy, I had occupational therapy, and I had um, uh, physical therapy. And I did my therapies every single day for, again, it took a long time. Um, I had a physical therapist for a year and a half. That's a long, a long time. time. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you a very strange question. Um, just again, educating myself and, and the listeners as well. So when you, when you had your stroke or when you couldn't talk and when you feel this, you're very cognitive, correct? So you know what's going on. You kind of realize that this is happening. It is you have no control over it, correct? Right. So you know the process of why um, a stroke like that would freeze your muscles. I don't. I think you had mentioned to me, or I looked read in your bio that you had lost your speech, your ability to talk. Is that correct? Yeah. That's it. And what do they call that? Well, I had aphasia. And can you so, help us understand aphasia? Well, aphasia could be many different things, but essentially it's a language disorder. And they say that if you're not addressing, <laughs> so if you're not addressing the disability and able to talk after for the third month of when you had it, you probably have it for life. Now, you can see that I can talk. I can see that you can talk. <laughs> so I actually decided that I would try to find a different way around not talking. And so I, at two years after the stroke, I heard of a doctor that did laser therapy. And I went and talked to him and he said, I don't know if I can do anything for you, but you can try it. And after four or five times, if it's not doing anything for you, you'll know. And I said, Okay, so let's try it. So I went in and he tried his laser on me and I could speak better. And okay, here's a question What do you mean by trying his laser on you? Okay, so he had a, an Arconia laser and he tried the Arconia laser on the part of my brain which had the stroke and he told me to do one thing and that was to do the cross crawl which is you lift, lift your left arm and right arm up and let let it go down and you lift your 
left arm and right leg up time and time and time again. And although I thought it was stupid, <laughs> I did it anyway. Makes you wonder and if they're sitting it, back there going, hey, watch this. <laughs> it does. So essentially, the laser penetrates your skull and it makes your, I can't think what they're called now. It's like it lets the energizer, energizer bunny loose in your skull. And so if you've got some uh, things that are dying, they don't die. It's like they're perked up and they go, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Like a, sort, yeah. sort of like a jolt of electricity. Like a jolt of the, exactly. So how long after that did you get your full speech back? So laser therapy actually worked partway. So at three and a half years after my stroke, I was still looking for something to make my speech better. And I ran into somebody who said, you should try neurofeedback. And I said, I don't know what that is. So he gave me the web address and he said, check them out. So I went home, I checked them out and I didn't see anything negative on the site. But what really caught my attention is that it said 85% of traumatic brain injury survivors get better. You know, it's interesting that you uh, relate the stroke to a traumatic brain injury. Right. Well, so it's kind of the same. Even though one is exterior and one is interior, interior they both impact how you feel. Well, I, I absolutely understand the relation. Yeah, it's, that's interesting because I've never, I've talked to other people who have had a stroke not extensively like we're doing now, but they've never referred to it as that. So I, I find that uh, intriguing, actually. Interesting. Yeah, I find that intriguing. So I decided I'd give it a try and see what happened. And again, he said, I can't guarantee it's going to do anything for you. <laughs> now, what exactly is neurofeedback? Help us understand that. So, ne so neurofeedback actually is a device, and they put electrodes on your head, and it it sends small impulses of electricity into your head. And so I was um, all set up, and he turned it on, and I could see my brain waves going across the computer screen, but I didn't feel anything. I went, this is weird. But yet, that afternoon, I talked better. And after 16 sessions, I talked like I do today. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it, perseverance is really something that anybody suffering from any kind of an injury, they need perseverance. You need to have the ability to say, I I can either sit back or I can move forward. I actually was diagnosed being a wheelchair for the rest of my life by five different doctors. And obviously my re my listeners have heard this before, <laughs> not, see, I, I chose to take another path just like you. I chose to not listen and sit back and go, okay, oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you for that. And then, you know, poor me, I said, I don't want to, that's not my answer. So your perseverance is a really important thing. And, uh, you know, kudos to you for, for being, you know, strong and moving forward and not taking, lying down, basically. Yeah, well, I think that there are enough people like me that we make, we should be able to influence others to try something different too. We just don't talk about it that much. Well, that's why we're having this conversation. Let's help educate people. Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly like you, I think it's wonderful that you can 
get up and walk around again. Well, thank you very much. I think it's wonderful that you're talking and walking. <laughs> thank you very much. And walking. Yeah. So once you, so it took you two or three years in order to get, you know, full capabilities back for talking. Did it take you that long for your physical, for your walking and the your muscles that had um, kind of paralyzed? So by a year and a half, I walked. It, if you looked at me and I was walking down the street, you can't tell that I'm a stroke survivor. Now, a doctor can tell, but anybody else really can't. The problem is that I'm still not really fully recovered. I have a bit of a right cramp in my foot. Or, I'm sorry, a cramp in my right foot. My knee is a little bit off. My hip is a little bit off. So I'm not quite there yet, but I'm working at it. <laughs> Everything is a journey of one step at a time, right? The first step to failure is the one you never take. That's exactly That's it. my motto. Yeah. First step to failure is the one you never take. When did you decide to take what you went through and share it with others to help them. How'd you become a healthcare advocate? Tell me some of that journey. I, I think some of the stuff that you had sent to me that um, you had, you had some interesting things happen to you while you were being cared for. Yeah. So I was still in the hospital and I was moved up from the emergency room to a private room. And as the nurse was taking me into my private room, she stopped and put me on the toilet. And then she went and made my bed. Well, <laughs> That is the wrong thing to do for somebody who has had a stroke. So I went crash, and she came running in with my husband. And that's the point when my husband realized he had to become an advocate, right? Because nobody else was really looking out for me. So that was step one. Step two was um, in the same hospital. They made me drink liquids instead of eating because I was uh, choked hazard, right? So I drank the liquids through a straw with my head going forward. I turned to the left to swallow and I turned forward when I was done. And that was to make sure that the liquid went down instead of down the wrong pipe because that way you get pneumonia, right? Well, unfortunately, they brought lunch to me and it was a real lunch. And I went, woohoo, chicken! And I started eating and I choked. <laughs> and I don't know how they got the chicken out of me. But that is the time when my husband realized I might die. And he was really nervous and scared from that point on. Did your husband so, become a caretaker from that point? Yeah, exactly. It's like, nobody else is looking out for her, so I've got to. So the bad thing is that he had to learn about what he needed to know every step of the way. And I'm going, well, this is crazy. So when I wrote my book, I wrote it so at least people would have something to start with, you know. And I, it's a, probably a bare bones because everyone is a little bit different. So if you're there for a stroke, you have one thing. If you're there for heart surgery, you have another. So you ha have different things to look out for. But at least somebody can look at that and go, oh, I could maybe try this or that doesn't seem right for me. Kind of a blueprint, kind of a guide, a little bit of a yep. guide. Yep. What other kind of things happened to you when uh, you were in the care of somebody else? Um, those were actually the two things that are probably the worst. I think that my care was actually quite good. Pretty good. So I know when I was in the rehab hospital and they wheeled me in to take my first bath or shower <laughs> and they said, you can take as long as you want. I was in there for a really long time because <laughs> one, it had been a week since I'd had a shower <laughs> or six days and I wasn't smelling so good. 
And two, it just felt good. Oh my God, it felt wonderful. Yeah. Yep. So I, I think the really interesting thing is that I had to let people put my clothes on me. And I am really shy, so that would normally put me <laughs> off the end of the couch. I took everything they did and say, I can't do it myself. They're going to do, do it and for now, but I'm going to do everything I can to get to the point where I can brush my teeth, comb my hair, get my clothes on. So I brushed my teeth okay, but I couldn't, when I spit, I couldn't tell my arm to move out of the way. So I'd, I'd let go of the toothpaste and I'd say, okay, move your arm now. Oh, darn. <laughs> it didn't move. <laughs> Got to gotta have those little uh, reminders. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was really bad at that. <laughs> it, it, so. Again, everything's a journey. Yeah, everything is a journey. It's interesting because the we all we all I've had five surgeries, so I can relate to some of what you're talking about because of the five surgeries that I've been through. Um, but it in the fact that I I can also empathize with you. You know, my wife had to get me dressed, get me undressed. My kids had to help me get dressed, get undressed, and you know, I'm I was a I was a law enforcement officer. I was a sergeant. So I was never put into a position, from my perspective, I was never put into a position where um, I had to ask for help from anybody. You know, I people came to me for help. So I had a learning curve myself that I had to overcome and say, okay, well, this is just the way it is and the way it's going to be for a little bit. But it also motivated me um, into mm -hmm. moving forward. So I think the lesson here from you is that if anybody out there listening has had a stroke or one of their family members or friends has had a stroke, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that you just need to be positive and move forward and that there you can overcome. You have to take the opportunity. You know, everybody's got a choice in life and you need to make a choice and you can overcome. I'm talking to you. I'm looking at you and, you know, you're doing great. So life is good, right? Yeah, it is. So you, what made you write the book? So there was thinking about my husband and thinking about how he had to learn things step by step by step. I decided I would put everything in a book so that people could read it. They could actually read it in a day. And now the last time or the time you don't want to read it is when you're in the hospital with a loved one. <laughs> but honestly, that's probably the time people need it most because it gives hope to the survivor. It gives hope to the caretaker. It's like, yes, your life has really become terrible for the moment, but it won't be terrible as long as you work forward, right? Yep. So you've had your, you had your stroke in 2014, this is 2020, and you still haven't fully recovered, but you are what, 90%? Yes, 90 or 95. What advice would you give to people in regard to if somebody is experiencing that or has experienced it, or if one of their family members has? So if somebody has experienced a stroke, I would say never give up. <laughs> and so if you are required to do exercises every single day, and I mean uh, physical exercises or speech exercises or whatever, do them. And you might not want to on some days, but do them anyway. Because the only way you're ever going to get better is if you repeat it, repeat it, repeat it for a long, long time. And I don't know about other people, but for me, if I decided I wouldn't do something on a day, it is so much harder to do it the next day. So just keep doing it. <laughs> keep moving. Keep moving forward. Yeah. Keep moving forward. Yeah. 
You were talking about reconnecting your neurons one action at a time. Can you help me understand what that is? That's when, well, first of all, that's doing things repeatedly. And it's also, for me, getting neurofeedback. I think the neurofeedback actually helped me spark something interesting. So if you look at the website for the neurofeedback, they say it's like the brain is stuck and it's like you're turning it off like a computer and then back on like a computer and all of a sudden you're going, oh yeah, it's working again. That's what they say is happening to your brain. It's like it's stuck in these the microcurrents from the uh, batteries in this neurofeedback machine are poking you and they say, oh, wait, oh, that's all right. I'm stuck. Oh, yeah, okay, I don't need to be stuck anymore. I can just go back to way, the way I need to be. Almost like rebooting a computer. Yeah, exactly. Similar to that. Yeah. That's interesting. When we were talking about aphasia, I know we're kind of backtracking a little bit here, but you're looking over your notes, the aphasia, do most individuals, you had said earlier that if, the aphasia hadn't gone away after a certain period of time, then you have no way of communicating uh, speech-wise, correct? So, it's again, it's different. So 40% of stroke survivors have aphasia. Of that, you have the aphasia like I have. So you can hear what people are saying, but you can't talk. Then you have the other type, and that's Broca's aphasia, which is right here, and that I'm t- pointing to my ear and I'm to the front of it. I have Wernicke's aphasia, it's back here, and I'm pointing to the back of my head just behind the ear. So they, you talk to them and they respond back to you and what you hear is gibberish. Okay, so and I want to now I have heard of people speaking gibberish that have had a stroke. Yeah, and so that's what's going on is that they have uh, Wernicke's aphasia. One of those. So, yeah. so your spouse, again, again, I'm sorry, we're bouncing around here just a little bit, but these things come up in, in my head and all of a sudden I have to say, wait a minute, we forgot to talk about this. So what was it like for your husband to become a caretaker? Because the caretaker, I mean, there's, there's thousands upon thousands of individuals that end up being caretakers for their loved ones across the United States, across the world, actually, but especially across the United States lately, from everything from like what you suffered, stroke, all the way through dementia and Alzheimer's and, you and so forth, and the the sudden change in lifestyle can change a relationship. It can change the way that they live. So, how did you guys manage that? So, he actually took the first two weeks of my stroke off, and then he made arrangements to work part time. So he was at the hospital and the rehab hospital with me. Every single day I was there. When I got home, he had rearranged everything. So the hot, um, shower had a chair in it. I was allowed to be upstairs, but I couldn't go downstairs. Um, he was watching everything I did. I didn't pay the bills. I didn't feed the cats. I just, I was just me, and I was taking care of me. He did everything else, and I was so grateful to him. When I got better. <laughs> So that was, I had my stroke in March. In August, he had to go back to work. And he said, I'm a little nervous about this, but I'm going to test you in the car. If you drive okay, you can take it four miles, but you can't drive on the highway. I said, woohoo, the car. Like a teenager again. I can have the keys. Thanks. (laughs) But okay. So, and you have to understand, I drive a 1997 Miata. I still drive a 1997 Miata. They're stick shift, aren't they? Yes, it is. 
Exactly. So we went out and sat in the car, and I turned the key, and it started. Woohoo! First thing, I couldn't get it into reverse, so I had to use my left hand to get it into reverse. And I got down to the end of the driveway, and I tried to get it into first gear, and it worked. I was able to drive every gear except reverse using my right hand. So he said, okay, it's fine. You can drive your four miles, but don't go anywhere else. (laughs) Now, if you have to go to a doctor's appointment, I will let you, but no highway driving. So here's the key. I was scared. I was scared I would have an accident. And I was scared for three years. Well, yeah, I would imagine because you don't really know what's going to happen and whether or not you can control a vehicle, whether or not it would hurt somebody else. That would be frightening. Exactly. Exactly. So I was always looking out for other people. But you're driving now, right? Yeah. Your husband obviously became a caretaker. Did that change your relationship? Yeah. So he still looks out for me. (laughs) And it's irritating. It's loving. Yeah, I know. I know. And I don't say much about it because he... He responded the way he can respond, right? So if he responded the other way where he's going, oh, it's your life, I'm just out of here, that would that would be so sad. That would be devastating I, to somebody, I, yes. Yeah. No, it's, I have a special place in my heart for people that become caretakers for individuals because it's a complete, complete sudden change to the lifestyle, to the relationship, and to everything that's going on within and around their lives in order for them to have to take care of somebody because they you don't always know what to what to say, what to do. You don't always know how to act. You don't, you go, unfortunately, and sometimes depending upon the length of time, you end up going from, from a husband or a wife, uh, a boyfriend, girlfriend, son, daughter, um, mother, father, you, that changes the relationship immensely because you go from family network is still there, but you become more of a a nurse, basically, and in that capacity, you step outside of the relationship for a few minutes. So I'm always I'm always making sure anybody that I've ever spoken with in regard to caretaking is that you always remember to have to take care of yourself as well, take care of your family, keep it a relationship. So the caretaking is just one aspect of it. You need to keep it a relationship. Yeah. So the interesting thing is um, he used to be very quiet. <laughs> now he's much more forward about things. So if something is bothering him, he says it. And I actually like that about him because it's much easier to communicate. And he's more vocal about things with other people too. Well, I think it kind of opens up. You never know what's going to happen on a daily basis. You never know what's going to happen when you wake up, just like what happened to you. You didn't wake up. You didn't put on your calendar that on, you know, this date in March you know, 2014, you're going to wake up with a stroke. You're, you, you just don't do that. So you never know what's going to happen. So each day should be very important to everyone out there listening. Take each day as if it's a very, I won't say take each day as your last day, because that's not really the right terminology, but you need to take each day as a gift. Exactly. You decided to write this book, and when you wrote this book, it was designed in order to help other individuals that are going through the same thing that you guys went through, kind of a guidebook. Is there any advice that you would give to anybody going through this, whether it be as a caretaker or as a a victim of stroke? So I would say that for everyone who's had a stroke, they never give up. 
That's what I said before. They should never, ever, ever give up. For caretakers, <laughs> you need to sleep. <laughs> you need to worry about yourself. And that's, I mean, it seems like it's a harsh thing to say, but if the caretaker doesn't take care of themselves and they burn out, then where are you? So they need to sleep, exercise, eat right, you know, the whole nine yards to be cognizant of where they are. If you can have someone come in and take care of your patient and you can take time off, please do. Yeah. Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website. It's strokeforward.com. And can they order your book through there? They can order my book through amazon.com and they just type in stroke forward and it comes right up. Outstanding. I know that you give lectures and you speak, do you not? I do. And where can somebody get a hold of you if they want you to come and talk about your experiences and helping them move forward? So they can contact me at Marsha at strokeforward.com. And my phone number is also there. I'm not going to give it out That's on fine. the podcast. <laughs> I, I will have the information in regard to your um, uh, website and the information about your book in the show notes. So that'll make it easy okay. for everybody. So we can they have a way of contacting you or getting a hold of you via your email or through your website. That worked. Good. Outstanding. Yeah. Did I miss anything? No. Great. Did I? <laughs> no, you did not. Um, Marsha, I really appreciate the time that you took with me today. I hope that uh, we were able to educate some people and help them to understand what somebody having a stroke goes through and what the journey consists of and how they have options of overcoming that. Thank you so much, Michael. I had a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.